episode 269. I'm your host, Mike, behind an editing again apps, and with, with me as always. Uh, well, I was going to come up with something clever, but I'm disarmed by that, so, uh, you know, your <laughs> usual uh, snarkster, Granny, I'm a master. And snarkster is Sparkster's brother. <laughs> okay, eventually. Your man in Japan, Michael Baker, Gaijima no Gatari. <laughs> so, uh, just to get this before uh, I forget it, since it's in the chat, thank you for showing up uh, once again, Fireminer. Uh, asking if any of us are catching Evo this weekend. We'll probably catch at least a little bit of it, but it'll depend. Catching what? Evo. Big fighting game tournament. Yeah. Oh. I thought you said e- um, I thought you said Devo for a moment. I was like, oh, you got a Devo concert or something? No. Sure. Why how, not? Very, how very much 80s. <laughs> we are not yeah. in. We are uh, in. Okay, yeah. So what have we been playing? Well, uh, like I said last week, um, on, the, um, on August 1st, I just put down Areshka for a while, and I started up Pokemon. Which one? Uh, sword. Sweet. Nice, nice. Fun game. Yep. Have you gotten to the catchy gym leader battle music yet? Well, I haven't. I don't usually play with the sound on, so oh. I have not heard it. I need to check this out. It's really good. Yeah. Just got some more Scarlet Violet info this morning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I haven't actually watched that yet. Was there anything big? Uh, they talked a bit more about how the open world works. Or they treated essentially implied that there are three like main storylines that you can pursue in any order. Huh. Like, there's the Jim Badges storyline that's tradition, but there's two other storylines they talked about in much vaguer terms. And, uh, like, one of the th- things that they kept bringing up was, like, well, what order will you do them in? So, yeah, it seems like there's three main storylines. Uh, you have a Pokemon motorcycle? That walks on its I don't feet. Mean, like, I don't mean like a Pokemon, a motorcycle themed after a Pokemon. I mean a Pokemon that turns into a motorcycle. Wasn't it the two legendaries or both motorcycles? Yeah. yeah. That's neat. I believe your box legendary becomes a. Uh, becomes a motorcycle. Fireman are asking if any of us has checked out the English patch for the PSP P2 Eternal Punishment. Uh, I have given it a look. I haven't played it yet, but from what I can tell and based on their documentation it seems to be an edit of the PS1 script, which is fine, it's a good script uh, and the new scenario is pulled from a translation that was on a uh, that was done a few years back, it seems like a solid one so I'll get around to it now that I, once I, it'll give me the excuse to go back and finish my uh, three quarters completed uh, P2 Innocent Sun run from last year uh, yeah, uh, Scarlet Violet looking real cool. Can't wait. They showed some new Pokemon. There's a bread dog. Um, bread dog. Yeah. Okay. I I need to double check what its name is. Uh, yep, its name is Fido. 
Yes. D O U G H. Yes. Yeah. D O U G H. I approve of this. Which is a perfect help on. Um, but yeah, Scarlet Violet looking real good. Uh, who'd have thought? <laughs> yeah. So, Pokemon Sword treating you okay? Yeah. Um, I mean, for all that, I just decided to set the language to French when I started, just for sure, the time's sake. Yeah, I've already uh, learned two new vocabulary words I had completely forgotten about. Congrats, Mr. Polyglot. Yeah. As it turns out, there actually is a French word that translates almost perfectly to the Japanese aniki, which is usually just bro in English. Yeah. It was like, I had never seen this word before. I'm like, okay. I figured this out one, one out from context. Yeah. And the other one, what was the other one that I had not remembered before? Oh, yeah, the, the, Jap the French word for henchman. Hmm. Which does not look like a French word. Hmm. Because it's originally an Italian word for um, like city guardsmen or something like that. Mm -hmm. So it's like, okay, you don't see many words that start with SB in French. <laughs> Sbeer. I'm even pronouncing that right. God, now I'm thinking about uh, just some of the loan words from Japanese that have. Uh, cropped up in English over uh, since World War II over there. Uh, the origin of which is sometimes forgotten, like honcho. Yeah, it was like... Which, that, that when you look at it, like, oh yeah, of course that's a Japanese word. But. <laughs> yeah, it means uh, boss of the main office. Yeah. And yeah. honestly, it actually, the, the term didn't change much. Apparently the American version is actually from the Japanese hancho. Mm -hmm. which is a squad leader or team leader. It just happens to have been misspelled and turned into the equivalent of something else in French. I mean, not in Japanese. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But still, not far apart in meaning, which is always fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I hope you, you put together a nice team in Pokemon British land. Oh, and I keep changing it up just um, mm. just to see um, or whatever the next gym leader is. Pretty and easy to in uh, yeah. Sword. Oh, yeah, I just bummed around the Wildlands for a while and ended up with ended up with Pokemon in the second storage box by the time I actually got to the first gym. <laughs> <laughs> Looking at uh, Arceus and Scarlet Violet, you can really tell that those Wildlands were definitely a, like technical and design trial run for where they were going with the franchise. Mm-hmm. And Wheels, what dozen games have you been playing? I have been playing one game. Oh, man. One game only. One dozen? One, one, okay. one game to rule them all. In the Darkness Blind one? Yes. Xenoblade Chronicles 3. Lots oh, of it. Yeah. Ten hours in. That's some Somehow. impressive work. Yeah. Given the what's what timing is on your plate. Yes. Uh, so, um, it's very very good. Obviously, uh, hmm. 
I was a little annoyed at the beginning with it because it throws you through lots of tutorials and it's just like, okay, you're only going to control the main, one of the main characters, Noah, to start with. Mm. And then it gives you a short time as some of the other characters playing some of the other roles. And the reason is because the game gets you to the full party of six characters relatively quickly and then everything kind of opens up. And it's important for you to know how everything else works before that point because a real-time battle system with six characters going all at once without a pause button, there's a lot going on. <laughs> um, I'm impressed that they made a game that looks that good with that much action going on in the typical battle. There's a lot going on, and the animations are really good. And, I hear that the characters also have like uh, more between combat dialogue like they'll just comment on things from what i've heard they uh, they will yeah and the dialogue is excellent nice uh but what was i gonna say um it feels like you have a lot more control over this battle system than any any of the previous games that's just good. like that was, that's like my biggest complaint about the earlier ones that like yeah. a lot of things just feel like they're happening yeah because that would be my big complaint too is like I love love those games I played tons of them but occasionally there'd be battles where it's like wow I wouldn't have died there if I could just switch to my healer and do a thing that's not stupid <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, but there's just too much going on <laughs> but now you can do that in this game because mm-hmm. you can that's freely impressive. switch between the characters at any time um, and not only that, but they also give you relatively early. I want to say it was like five hours in the whole uh, the whole thing where you fuse the two characters into like a mech thing. Nice. And it's not it's not what I thought it was going to be. Where I thought, well, oh, you know, this is only going to come up in a lot of big battles because you have to build up to this. It's no, you can merge them right at the start of a battle, and it as you're using it it'll build up like a heat gauge and if you don't like switch out of it too fast it it will like make it longer before you can use those again and just like the classes in the game are split into like defender attacker and healer um the three merge things are kind of split into that too so hmm. if you're kind of in, in need of some extra healing, like the two characters that start as heal, healers, you can merge in and they have some extra healing abilities there too. And it also seems like they don't really take damage when they're in those swarms. It just kind of builds up hmm. the, the, the heat gauge faster. Yeah, it just makes it so that they'll yeah. have to split and cool down right. faster. So you can also use that to like get out of a pinch if some characters are really low and maybe your healer's abilities are Tapped. on refresh. And there's also other ways you control it too, is you can, I wish this was kind of set on by default, but you can say when you're in a battle, you know, focus on focus attack, like whatever the character you're controlling is attacking, everyone else can attack that. Just especially handy in boss battles where ads come up and you just want to, you need, especially if you're playing on hard, you really need to clear those out or things will go bad. Uh, but in addition to that, um, there's a lot of character skills where, okay, I, like one of them is I drop a healing circle down and 
obviously with six characters, they're often going to be spread out. So there's an ability, there's a command you can just say to uh, that just groups them up. They'll like stop attacking and just group them up. So you can group everybody up on the healing circle or maybe some other buff circle, and then resume attacks. So, I mean, just aside from just I can switch to to the other party members on the fly, which is great. You just have a lot of control in general um mm. which is great i mean a lot of times just little battles this won't come into play but you know there's even just some regular you know encounters can be pretty dangerous and you have to take all these things into account so they've clearly learned a lot from the past few games on how to handle this sort of system to like maintain the complexity without making yes so it's yeah overwhelming so it seems like it's in a really good place and you know i can certainly understand anyone else annoyed like me with those early tutorials but to be honest i think it's kind of necessary like even if you've played a million of these games before sometimes it's good to just say no pay attention here's where all the things are and then it's it's 40 hours right it's like the it's it's almost like the way that Final Fantasy thirteen should have been. Like, okay, we're going to hold your hand for a little bit, and then everything's opened up because we've shown you where everything is, and now you can, mm. now you have everything you need to to do this. And uh, one of the early boss battles, I think I was, I honestly think it was like a twenty minute boss battle, and it was honestly pretty exhilarating, especially with the music these games have. So. Uh, it's a very good game. It's got a very different tone from Xenoblade 2. It's a lot more serious and with bits of humor that are fun and the characters are <clears throat> very endearing right off the bat. So it mm. looks like it's going to be a very good one. Nice. But we'll, we'll see. It's a huge, clearly a huge, huge game. I've been in this giant desert area for a while now and I've probably seen very little of it, so... Uh, yeah, it's it's a Xenoblade, and it looks like another good one. So, you know, kudos to Monolith Soft for perfecting their art. Uh, Firemaner's asking how the grind is. Uh, it's not bad. It's not bad. I haven't really had to do. I'm playing it hard. I haven't really had to do any grinding at all. Um, hmm. they kind of have the bonus XP system from. Xenoblade 2 where certain things give you this bonus experience and then when you find like a rest point you can use that to level up characters faster so uh, yeah yeah, it doesn't seem too bad and um, there's a lot to explore just getting from like point to 80 to B so I I don't think there's going to be too much grinding and I've heard very good things about the side quests too so I mean, if you need to grind, you're, you're probably going to find some really good stories. Yeah. Like I saw somebody tweeting about how they went through some side quest and it was like as good as you'd find in like a main JRPG story. So hmm. it's good. Nice. It's, it's a very interesting world they're building. And I'm curious as to how it's going to connect to the past games because I just... I'm sure it I can, on, I'm sure it will, yes. <laughs> so we'll we'll see. Uh, so yeah, that's pretty much what I've been playing and probably will be the primary thing I'm playing for quite a while. 
um, aside from non some non RPGs, obviously. Yeah, but we'll talk about that at the end of the show. Uh, as for me, uh, for my birthday, a friend sent me a copy of Live Alive, but I haven't gotten the chance to fully sink my teeth into it because I want to make sure that I finish Legend of Heroes instead of stalling out near the end. <laughs> I'm on chapter five of six, and that's that's still a fascinating game. Um, I'd be curious to see a comparison between like the original like PC eighty eight version and the Turbo version because the Turbo version. I believe was made by the East Book One and Two developers hmm. within uh, in the whole uh, Turbo Enterprise. But uh, it's uh, there's just a lot of things about it, like from a technical perspective, that I find fascinating. Uh, not the least of which is the very clear way that it's handling having random battles, which is to say that they aren't random at all. Hmm. Really? Uh, so the way that it works is that the map is swarming with invisible symbol encounters. And when you run into one, if you run away, it will it will that one will stay visible. And that can give you an idea of like how this is actually arranged. And eventually you'll get items that if you use them, it just makes all of the invisible encounters visible. And it's, it's kind of fascinating because uh, it, it's a very strange way of going about it. And I don't, I can't think of another game from that time that actually uses the system. Because I'm pretty sure like a lot of the old, like the classic JRPGs, the way they worked was that it would do a dice roll, uh, per, you know, preferably jinxed in some fashion, but it would do dice roll every time you moved. Like every tile you moved, it rolls a die to see if you get into another encounter. Um, but this very much doesn't do that. And that means that it generally has fewer random encounters than a lot of its contemporaries, but it also means that it's actually possible to get into a random encounter while standing still. <laughs> uh, swings and roundabouts. Uh, uh, also, someone... Oh, uh, Fireminer's asking if any of us has tried uh, the original Fire Emblem creator's new game, Vesteria Saga 2, which just got localized. I have not yet. It's on my radar, but I haven't tried it yet. Hmm. I haven't either. But, yeah, Shouzo Kaga's uh, latest work, he's basically been making uh, games that would have been Fire Emblem games uh, basically ever since he left Nintendo like 20 years ago, so... Probably worth looking at. Um, but yeah, uh, I'm fairly late into Legend of Heroes. Um, like I said, I'm halfway through chapter five of six. Uh, about 15 hours on the clock, uh, level 41, and pretty, pretty well set to essentially make a beeline through the rest of chapter five. Uh, I want to. One of the things that is useful about the way that they set up the random encounter zone, like this has been on my mind, is, and one of the things I really like about the game, is that uh, to mark story progression, like the idea is that like you're uh, chasing these hordes of monsters that are controlled by the villain faction out of the areas. So when you finish a story chapter, the continent 
it took place on ceases to have random encounters at all. Hmm. Because you chase the monsters out. And it's like, oh, it's actually neat. Like, to... You know, it's it's simple, but it's a good way to integrate the idea of, like, oh, no, you are actually improving the world. And, like, that's why your characters start to build up a reputation as, like, monster slayers over the course of the game. Because it's like, well, you fucking completely chase monsters out of, like, half of the world by now. People have noticed. And, you know, that's actually cool. Uh, and, you know, like, the characters are pretty simple, but... For a game from 1989, they all have, like, you know, backstories and motivations and other characters they already know, which, again, for 1989, pretty rare. So, I've been, uh, you know, late in the game, and I'm still fairly impressed by it. It's like a game that, for its year of release, was kind of thinking ahead of its time to the direction that JRPGs would be going in the next, like, five years, probably at least in part because of where this one went. So, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a neat little game. That, uh, the TurboGrafx CD version is quite... Oh, yeah, there's another thing that I was really impressed with on a technical level. Um... So, the people making the TGCP version clearly understood uh, the drawbacks that came with making a CD game in that era. And one of the clever cleverest things they do is when they switch from using CD audio to using synthesized audio from the uh, like game console. So, like, uh, for example, the overworld. Um, the overworld music is a Red Book Audio CD track. But the battle music is a track synthesized by the PC Engine's sound chip. Because that means that the battle music that has to start up and stop very quickly, very often, is always right, already done, ready. Whereas the world map music doesn't. Uh, have an unnatural like start and stop to it because it just like it's able to hold in memory where it was in the track when the combat started so you don't constantly hear the start of a cd track over and over and over it just holds it and plays it after the battle is done and honestly that is a much smarter use of their resources than most people who were making CD games at the time. <laughs> I'm, uh, like I said, very legitimately impressed by uh, how much thought went into that game, and specifically that version as well. So, uh, if you have access to an old Turbo CD game by Hooker by Crook, uh, honestly, I'd, I'd say it's worth giving a shot if you enjoy a somewhat grindy old RPG. Okay. Yeah. Bit of a shame that uh, the second uh, Legend of Heroes, which is a direct sequel to the first, is the only one that has no English translation in mm. the version. <laughs> we got one, two, three. Uh, we got one, three, four, five, six, uh, seven, eight. Well, soon to have seven. But. Nothing on to. 
but yeah, so I've been playing that, and honestly, like I said, very favorably impressed. Um, after that, I will probably take a quick pit stop to play Live Alive, uh, and then uh, I'm going to try to move on to tra uh, Trails in the Sky, because while there are translations of 3, 4, and 5, which formerly is Trilogy, they are translations made by Bondi in 2006, which means they're bad. <laughs> what, the... The Gagarv trilogy? Yeah, the Gagarv games for, that they localized on PSP and fucked the order of for some reason. I think they did 2 1 they 3. Didn't really care. Huh? Because they didn't care that much? No. Yeah, they did not care. Yeah, uh, I think it is 2 it was, 1 3. It's something weird like that. Yeah, it's 2 1 3. Because I know that 3 is 3 on both. Uh, the 3 is the third part, regardless of whether you're in America or Japan. But. For some reason, they did two before one. And yeah, I, I don't know. They, yeah, it's a bit of a shame. I, I would like to give the Gagarv games a fair shake, but I wish that they had a better translation. <sighs> but oh well, someday. Hopefully someday someone does uh, Legend of Heroes 2 as well. Because I'd, I'd honestly like to see what the uh, sequel to... This game looks like where the you're playing as this game's protagonist's son. Could be fun. Hmm. Sounds neat. Uh, yeah, so that's primarily what I've been playing, other uh, in terms of RPGs. Uh, but yeah. Uh, I'm curious, is there anything coming out this month? Or is August Star Quiet before or is August Star Calm before the storm? <laughs> um the Turtles collection comes out at the end of the month. Yeah, the thirty first. It's basically a September yeah. game. Uh no, I, think, uh, I don't think there's anything else big before a I'm wave gonna, of stuff. Yeah. I'm gonna make sure that you play uh, Radical Rescue on stream someday. I'll do it. It's a good one. It's a good one. Yeah, well, uh, looking at the list of games coming out this month, I've never heard of any of these. Uh, other than, like, if you still need to play the uh, PS4 Spider-Man game on your PC. Yeah, nothing. Oh, still Hackers 2 is this month. Oh, August 26. Fuck! I'm still going to hold off on that one in the hopes that the Switch version is just late yeah. rather than never. Yes. Well, I jumped on it... the Collector's Edition just oh, because... Yeah. Uh... No, I understand that. But yeah, Soul Hackers 2, that will be cool. But yeah, I'm probably going to do the same and wait a little bit and see if the Switch port... playing out. Yeah. yeah. But yeah... We're, we're thankfully at the point where, like, a lot of Atlas's games that get physical releases, you don't have to jump on the second they're out, or else you're dead. Yeah. So, I have no, a bit of a luxury. Uh, yeah, definitely not. I mean, like, SMT5, I still see in, like, Targets. And yeah. You like, can, you can actually, buy, like, a stack a of copies of actually target. Personify. Stock those. Yeah. No, it's good. It's a good place to be. Hmm. You're living large compared to the days when I bought 
uh, Devil Summoner from a GameStop, and they were like, good thing you pre-ordered this. We only got one copy. Yeah. Wow. I'm convinced that the only reason they got that one copy is because I had pre-ordered it. It's most likely. Yeah. Back in the day, that was, that was misery. Uh, moving on up in the world. Yeah, it's a lot better than uh, the physical copies of the game I'm playing right now. Even the HD version is completely impossible to get out. Yeah. Is the 3DS version expensive too? I would imagine, but I've not checked. It's about 2,000 yen over here for the 3DS version. Well, it's not too bad. Yeah. Oh, Lord. That sounds bad. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I've seen worse. It's only in like the 70 to $90 range. For the 3DS? Yeah. Oh, God. What the hell's the Switch at now and then? I know that that got real bad for some reason. It was like specifically the Switch version basically no copies of. That one's currently at like 70 it looks like, so you can get it. Okay, it's just more than it started. Yeah. <sighs> the Alliance is still alive. Uh, yeah. Uh, is there any news other than Scarlet Violet? I mean, we could always talk about Metal Max more. Yes. Oh, yeah. We haven't we talked, talked about, about that on show the, yet. Yeah, we talked about that on Shenanigans. But yeah. Okay. Uh, Metal Max was sold by Kakawa to Psy Games. Which would make it the fourth company to own this particular IP, which is fun. Yeah, it's, it's really been passed around. Uh, but yeah. Uh, Seemingly in the process, killing the other uh, as yet uh, that had not been spoken up for like three years. Uh, Metal Max project in development. Uh, Metal Max Code Zero, I think, something like that. Yeah, Code Zero. But yeah, uh, as we discussed on Shenanigans and Gaijin verified, like they have not spoken of that since for, uh, mentioning it back when Xeno Reborn, when Wild West was still in development and was called Xeno Reborn Two. I had actually forgotten that Code Zero existed as an idea. Yeah. Oh, I don't blame you at all. I mean, they didn't speak of it, but yeah. Uh, so, along with that purchase, uh, Psy Games has hired on the creator of the Metal Max franchise uh, to... Uh, Literally the creator. Yeah. To, yeah. Keep the, to keep the thing going, and he was talking about how they are uh, currently in like the uh, ideas phase of a new project, which is what leads me to believe that Code Zero has been just summarily canceled. Uh, and that, like, honestly, based on when Wild West was canceled, was, was Wild West canceled like six months ago, something like that? Wild West was canceled like three, within the last three months. Okay, so that was almost a short it, it was, Yeah, because 
it was canceled sometime after like Metal Dogs was published, but before I actually put up the Metal Metal Dogs review. Yeah, I'm looking so at it in like June when the story broke. So May or June. If I were to hazard a guess, that game was canceled essentially because Psy Games bought them. Uh, that makes sense. Yeah, but. Uh, specifically, all information that's actually come out about this is honestly fairly encouraging because basically uh, they're talking about how they want to make a console game, and that uh, you know they want it to they want to sell it to Metal Max fans and RPG fans worldwide. So it's generally they're making signals of we're trying to make like an actual proper game, not just we didn't just buy this as Gotcha Fodder. And we're trying to make this something that we can sell outside of Japan. So, you know, it's it's very early days, but I mean, at this point, I would say it certainly doesn't look like it's doing any worse than it was under Katakawa, certainly. So. We have more hope than we did a week ago. <laughs> yeah, basically. Um, much, much more hope, yes. So... I mean, here's to here's to hopefully a bright future for the post-apocalypse. Mm-hmm. At least a brighter one than Xeno was. Yeah. <laughs> that was a dark. It was like the most. Okay, let's see how dark we can make this game. Ha ha. Yeah, that that one very much feels like there was some executive mandate about like what sells now. Yep. Uh, I just remember one of my comments or one of the things I said in one of the impressions was like, okay, so instead of actual towns or instead of towns, we have very recent blast craters. Huh. Is there is not a single town left in the game that is still intact. (laughs) Uh... The first first township that you try to visit actually is literally a blast crater left in the ground. Yeah, just yeah. It's nice to see like a refocusing of direction to hopefully something a little more fun. (laughs) Something that actually remembers what the series is like. Yeah, and hopefully one that, uh, and you know, hopefully one where they make good on their promises of like we want to sell this to the world (laughs) Mm -hmm. because that's. uh, that's a big deal. But yeah. Um, so that's, that's the news that we care about. Um, uh, yeah. What else was I... Yeah, it doesn't, it, it's been a pretty quiet week other than that. The Pokemon... Presents, which we all will eventually have to watch because it has the Pokemon Unite news. <laughs> oh, sweet! Is it good news? I I don't know. I think they were just adding more Pokemon to it or something. I wasn't paying attention. Oh, sweet. <laughs> I mean, I've got Decidueye. I don't really need anyone else. <laughs> but you care. I do care. But yeah. So that's, uh, I think that's our news for the week. So now we must dig into the big bag of questions. The big book of British smiles. Uh, didn't we get a question on Twitter from Eric RPG too? 
Oh yeah, we should do that because yeah. that is very easy to lose track of. Yes. <laughs> okay. Pop this open and see what we can find. I was actually thinking about this question, but I just want to uh, earlier, but I just want to make sure that I get the verbiage exactly correct. Um, there we go. Uh, Q and A question: Someone on Twitter had a fan theory about how Sephiroth actually died when Cloud checked him in the ravine, and Genova is manipulating their body with it. Thoughts? Um, my thoughts are: How many one-winged angels can dance on the hood? <laughs> None, because uh, he doesn't dance. <laughs> But yeah, uh, realistically, uh, textually, like I don't think there's anything to prove or disprove this. And when you get to those sort of situations, you run into like the only worth in a theory like that is does it make the story more interesting? And honestly, I would disagree with the idea that it does. Yeah, it's so, a mildly which, interesting. Which story was it? I mean, uh, I, mean which seven. I mean, I was like, okay, what was the exact? The idea died. that the idea that Sephiroth had died uh, during the one of the Nibelheim flashbacks, and that in that so process it's... his body had just been possessed by Genova. It's half of what I got out of the the game. My my original thought was like the Sephiroth that you meet at the end of the game for the final boss mm -hmm. is that original Sephiroth, and everyone else has been him possessing people who have been infected with Genova. Yeah, that is the accurate, like, a yeah. according to the text of uh, introduced by further games and clarifications and all that, that is the impression yeah. you were meant to receive. Because, uh, like, every time, you think you've, every time you think you've defeated him, one of the other former soldier test subjects gets infected and or gets possessed, and he turns into Sephiroth. In, <laughs> in, yeah. in the original, I believe the thought process is actually that... Uh, Genova cells are essentially uh, being masquerated as Sephiroth, but yeah. Um, I mean, he's kind of merged with Genova to the point where he is or possessing people through that. Uh, yeah, that and and Seven Remake actually goes further with that concept. Not surprised. Uh, but, yeah, but yeah, that was, that was always the take I had on it. I remember having this conversation back in the, literally two thousand. Mm. <laughs> But yeah, uh, the theory itself, uh, to, to look at it, like the, the issue that I have with it is that uh, it doesn't really clarify Sephiroth's actions in a meaningful fashion, because it's just like, well, now instead of being the actions of a person that was understandable at one point and is now completely unhinged, you're now uh, saying that they're the actions of essentially an unknowable alien entity, mm. uh, yeah. which to me is like, because when you get into this kind of fan theory, you're getting into like the 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 point. the The best thing that this kind of theory can do is to make interpretation of the story more interesting. And the problem is that because Genova is not really a being with knowable intention, it doesn't make the story more interesting. So I don't think much of the theory. But, you know, if someone wants to believe it, more power to them. But that would just be my personal thought process. Anyone else uh, got strong opinions about that sort of thing? Because, like, these kinds of fan theories crop up with most games with yeah. a major following. Yeah. 
they're a lot of these are just like interesting and but then they just fall apart like i remember one of the annoying ones that always was thrown around was is link dead in majora's mask and it's like it's an interesting idea but once you really dig into it it just completely falls apart when you have to like twist and turn certain story elements to match up to your weird theory and I think this really applies to this one too. Like, it'd be an interesting idea for a completely different Final Fantasy VII, but it just does not make sense to the Final Fantasy VII we have. Yeah, like the uh, is Link dead in turn? The thing is, like, to me, it's one of those situations where it's like, uh, I I don't care about whether it perfectly lines up. I care about whether it makes the game the plot more interesting and to me it doesn't yeah like it doesn't add anything to that like termina is a world in that is defined for the player by impending doom to take someone and say they're already dead is pointless (laughs) like the because like that's the that's the i'm just gonna launch into this like that's the thing that makes termina such an such a fascinating setting for uh Majora's Mask. It is a world defined by time and how little it has left. And that is like and, and you can see that in how people uh process and fail to process what is happening. Because you have like the uh, mayor, the, the like meeting in the mayor's office that's going on for almost the entire game. Like the, in terms of, like if you check in at just about any time in those seventy-two hours, you will find the mayor and like a couple of other like old dudes, and they're all ju- they're just continuously debating in circles. We should do something. Should we do something? We should do something. And like they're they're fretting because they have no capacity to affect. Uh, what is happening so they're just sort of fretting back and forth and that in a nutshell is a lot of the populace of Termina you look in like uh, one, of the, one of the best easter eggs in that entire game is the sword the swordsman trainer that uh, is like sitting there and impassive for most of the game until you get to those last six hours where if you bother to go into his like sword training school during that you will find you can't find him you can just sort of hear him and then if you uh go back to where he normally is you can reach like a sort a semi-hidden room and he is essentially just cowering waiting for death (laughs) and it's like ah of course like his his level of uh, capacity to deal with the impending doom was built entirely on the fact that the doom was not yet here. And the sec- and once it became clear that nothing had averted it yet and time was almost up, his, his capacity to remain calm broke. So, mm. yeah. Uh, hmm? Interesting. I don't think I ever saw that in a game. Yeah, it's it's a very obscure uh, Easter egg. <laughs> but yeah, like Majora's Mask is defi- defined by uh, 
the, you know, the impending doom. And so that which has already been destroyed is of markedly less interest and thematically less mm-hmm. re- resonant to the game. Yeah. Uh, so what about the, the squall is dead theory? Oh god, I've never seen <laughs> that one. Well, the um, part of it was based on a an actual graphical glitch in the first print run of the Final Fantasy VIII CDs, where mm-hmm. in the closing or in the final FMV sequence. Um, oh, at the end of disc one. No, I mean it was at the end of the game. It was. Oh, like this weird like dream sequence, and it shows oh, yeah, everybody, yeah. and finally shows Squall facing the TV, um, facing the camera, and due to a graphical glitch, there is no face. <laughs> Oops. Yeah. But yeah, uh, yeah, I think I, I seem to recall the variants of this that I heard were uh, essentially that he had died at the end of this one, but I'm sure that's not the yeah. only variant of this. No, I mean, yeah, he ends up with a, I mean. Because he gets the impaled by a lance of ice through his chest. So yes. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, like, main character is actually dead. Is like baby's first. I'm trying to come up with a uh, interpretation of the plot that does not rely on the strict textual analysis. So I can't really fault people for uh, lighting on it, but I do wish that people would learn to move past it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because, you know... It's like, I'm trying too hard to be edgy. Yeah. You can, you can tell that it's often one thought by teenagers. But... Uh, speaking of FF8, there was always the one that floated around that uh, Ultimacia was uh, Renoa from the future. It uh, only works if you consider that the witches are supposed to have a, six, a succession of power and Ultimacia is the end of the succession. Mm-hmm. But it's 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 that, and there's like one line where uh, Renoa like uh, is supposed to be speaking figuratively, but talking about having like some degree of sympathy for Ultimacia's goals because of her desire to like maintain a moment forever. But mm-hmm. it's uh, you know, it's it's you know, slightly metaphorical. But yeah, um, it's you know, yeah. like these sorts of fan interpretations, like are often, as with any sort of interpretation, they're very selective readings. But also, just mm-hmm. I don't light upon many of them because most of them don't really uh, make the material more engaging to me. <laughs> so. That's uh, that's about all I'd have to say. Meanwhile, uh, I'm I'm much more of a fan of trying to come up with uh, textual interpretations of games that are impossible to interpret literally, like Killer Seven. So <laughs> uh, I will never get over the Killer Seven was a game that. Uh, could have uh, one of its core themes be summed up as fuck both the Japanese and U.S. governments. <laughs> and because it was so shrouded in metaphor and so deliberately off-putting, basically no one in 2005 noticed. 
that, that's why uh, that's why that game is a, uh, as far as I'm concerned, masterpiece. Uh, I've never played it. You should someday. I should. It's uh, it's got very impressive cinematography and some of the best art direction of any game ever. Hmm. It's it's oh man, that's oh, that's something I wanted to talk about because I was thinking about. So on my birthday, me and some friends watched uh, John Woo's uh, seminal heroic bloodshed movie, Hard Boiled. Hmm. Uh, and when I was watching that, uh, two things occurred to me. One. Uh, Yakuza character Goto Majima is definitely at least partially inspired by one of the villains in that movie who is a one-eyed assassin who is referred to only as the Mad Dog hmm. which uh, for those unfamiliar with Yakuza the nickname of Majima who is one-eyed from every from the first game onward is the Mad Dog of Shimano so yeah I don't think that was an accident uh, oh, no, that is an homage. Yeah. Uh, but the other thing I was going to say about it was uh, there is a very impressive uh, and fairly famous two-minute uh, unbroken take uh, from uh, in about three-quarters of the way through that movie where you're, uh, where the camera is following Chow Yun-Fat and Tony Lung uh as they uh as they're shooting their way through like a just pile of gangsters and the cinematography is fascinating because you know it's it's a very for want of a better term a very intimate uh sort of look at the like violence on display like it's very like you're right over their shoulders you can see like how they're lining up shots even though you're not seeing from their perspective and when i looked at it it was like Oh, this is why third-person shooter cameras are like this. <laughs> like, there, this kind of cinematography definitely affected games like Resident Evil Four, which would go on to affect every third-person shooter thereafter, because it allows you to be up close with the gunplay. You can see how the guns are pointed and how the action is framed, but you don't have to be seen from the perspective of the person firing the gun. Suddenly it all slides into place. And like seeing the influences of various media that come to create the visual language of video games is very fascinating to me, so I want to talk about that a bit. <laughs> Another movie I need to watch. Oh, it's it's a it's a fucking incredible action movie. Awesome. There, uh, the last uh, act is basically an unbroken uh, action scene for like forty solid minutes, and it never gets boring. Wow, <laughs> it's uh, it's truly incredible. Uh, but yeah, um, sorry, I just I just needed to make that tangent because it was something I've been uh, percolating on for the last like five days. Uh, yeah, uh, it's about two hours. It's worth every. It's worth every second. And uh, oh man, it's just it's just cool as shit. Basically, <laughs> basically from every yeah, from from the word go. Uh, oh, it, it made me realize uh, 
another thing that I had seen not long ago. Uh, the PS, the second PS2 Matrix game, the one that was just, uh, you get to play through the movies. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the things they did to expand out the runtime was that they increased the amount of training programs with Neo that you have, that you play through. And uh, one of those scenarios is clearly just uh, one of the later parts, uh, one of the later scenes from Enter the Dragon. And another of them, when I looked at it, is the opening uh, shootout from Hard Boiled. <laughs> Which. Well, they knew, uh, they knew where that movie got its inspirations from. Yeah, like that was like the more, like any thought at all into where those uh, training segments go. And it's like, oh, no, that makes perfect sense. That was a good choice on your part, developers. Let's see. Okay, but let's hit some questions. Um, okay. Uh, let's look at this. Uh, let's see. So, in this one, Fire Miners being a blood, uh, a gore fiend, a bloodhound, whatever you want to call it, uh, am I right to think that 3D beat-em-ups have been too quote-unquote clean? I want to see a Yakuza game where the brains of random mooks spill out of their earlobes after you give them permanent brain damage. I want to see pools of blood when uh, people Spider-Man throws down from top of sky scrapers land. In other words, I want another prototype. That sounds uh, gross. Yeah, I think that yeah, the issue is... Like you need to talk to somebody. Okay. <laughs> I don't say you need to talk to somebody, but at the same time, it is one of those things. It's like, I think that's a very limited appeal thing. That's an automatic Z rating in Japan. Yeah, that's the other thing you're going to run into. Is you're never going to see that from Yakuza. I was going to say, several of the games that you're mentioning are already Z ratings in Japan. You know, this is. Uh, let's find out what a double Z rating is. <laughs> Just go play No More Heroes. You'll be fine. I spleen. <laughs> Pretty sure that's the game you're looking for. That is, in fact, a game that is uh, very comfortable with the idea of you bisecting someone or doing a suplex and it, it exploding someone's head. But he's but, talking about very graphic levels of detail here. Yeah, that's also true. And Prototype was that. Um, I would argue I don't need another prototype, mostly because I think that mechanically prototype is not terribly interesting. I'm also going to go off on prototype because it has uh, maybe the worst story I've ever experienced in a game. Uh, like, not specifically in terms of what its content is. I think the content is merely mediocre, but I think that it's horribly told in a way that's fascinating. Mm -hmm. Because the way that a lot of the backstory in Prototype was delivered was something called like the Web of Conspiracy, where the idea was that you would uh, you would have these target people that you were trying to absorb, uh, and as you absorb them, you would get part, uh, you would like get some of their memories, and it would help you piece together aspects of what was going on in the story. It's a conceptually interesting uh, concept, except that. Uh, most of them essentially were five second flashes of the same uh, of like parts of a five or so minute cutscene and so like the first several dozen of them 
are just worthless to actually discover, to actually understanding anything. So by the time you actually have absorbed enough of them to uh, start having a meaningful understanding of what all of these things are supposed to be correlating to, you don't care anymore because it's been a dozen hours. And have, like, you would have to be rewatching every every time in order to try to correlate them. That just isn't interesting enough. It's a really fascinating and poorly told story. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I think the issue you run into is that like there definitely is an appeal to that kind of grindhouse uh, level of violence, uh, but that uh, you're the like not many mainstream developers want to pursue it, and that's why uh, the last time the last game I can think of that seems to satisfy the criteria would actually be the 2010 Splatterhouse reboot. Which you might want to give a look, because I think you uh, enjoyed that if you're a gorehound. Uh, speaking of bloody and conspiracy, I played the weird PS1 horror game uh, starring Athena from KOF, Awakening from Ordinary Life. Oh, I've heard of that, but not actually played it, because I don't... If it has a fan translation, it's a very recent one. Yeah, Athena Awakening from the Ordinary Life. Uh, it's just like a weird horror RPG. And, like, that's very clearly from the period where SNK was realizing that fighting games were tailing off and trying to find other things to hang their hat on. And mm -hmm. I don't think that anyone who was going to be drawn in by Athena in 1997 was going to want to play, like, a horror RPG starring her. Mm. It's just... just a weird choice. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, it's a mildly interesting thing, like a curio, but I've never actually gotten the chance to play it. So, can't speak to more than that. Uh, let's see, moving on. How much gore is considered too much for a mainstream game? Depends upon if you're in Japan or America. And so, I, I was going to say something about um, Z ratings for Japan. The, yeah. um, so, like, every single Resident Evil game, Z rating. Yeah, I know the joke um, is that Z stands for zombie. <laughs> no, all the Grand Theft Auto games, Z rating. Hitman, Z rating. Um, mm. Borderlands, all three of them, Z ratings. So, yeah. And none of them, and, the kinds of franchises they are in the market, they are uh, the kinds of None of them are anywhere near as popular in Japan as they are in America. I think there is just a cultural greater distaste for that level of gore. <laughs> yep. So, I mean, if you look at all of the Z ratings, the number one indicators are, first of all, gore. Second mm -hmm. of all, just random violence. Third of all, crime. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Uh, okay, Fireminer asked if the Game Boy Color uh, Resident Evil was Z rated, and I was going to say, I don't think several ratings existed when that game came out. <laughs> no, but I can say that the one... DS game I ever saw with a, that lo that particular rating was in fact a Resident Evil game. Probably Resident Evil Deadly Silence. Yeah. 
I do not remember what the title was in Japanese, but it was different from the American one, I'm sure. Oh, I'm sure, but it's like there's only one Resident Evil on the original DS. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, I want to say Sarah ratings didn't standardize until the early aughts. Yeah. Uh, also, I don't think that Resident... I don't know that Resident Evil Gaiden even came out in Japan. Uh, I think about it. It was not uh, entirely internally developed. Uh, okay, now it must look like it did come out in Japan, but yeah, pre-Sero, there is no Sero rating on this box I'm looking at. Let's see. Okay, Resident Evil. But as for general mainstream tastes, uh, I think once you start seeing internal organs, you start really turning people off mm. in the U.S. Like, you know, uh, blood spray can be, uh, is, is something people are generally willing to accept. And there's a certain amount of organs that they'll accept because you've got games like Mortal Kombat 11. But even that, tends to be a little like okay that dude got split open but we're not necessarily going to show too much of what's inside him <laughs> and they uh, they usually prefer more the koopa peak style um hmm. one of the random things i remember from literature class in college but um the old uh, the old french epics especially the illustrations that went with them since the, since the artist had no actual concept of what internal organ structure was supposed to look like because no dissections at that time, so you ended up with pictures of people getting literally cut in half or like bisected um, vertically by one mm -hmm. huge chop called the, the epic blow, the Coupe Peak. And yeah. it was like a model and where there's no skeleton size, just the organs just flopping out. Um, mm -hmm. It's like cartoonish when you look at it. These old uh, paintings, and that's yeah. about the maximum level of gore you're going to get out of a Japanese game, for the most part. Just like yeah. it's, you may actually see something, but it's going to be very comical. Yeah, and in North America, uh, I would say that the answer is that once you start seeing like any sort of detailed amount of internal viscera, is generally around the point where the mainstream starts to go away. Uh, like if you're seeing gray matter, if you're seeing intestines or like any identifiable internal organ, like that's when people start being like, oh, this is too much for me. Mm -hmm. uh, so you can get like the, you can definitely get plenty of arterial spray. You can get like body parts exploding, but notably like games where body parts get destroyed, like present people decapitation or Grand Theft Auto. Like, you don't see what's left, and you don't see what exploded. You just see blood and colors, and then it's kind of gone. And that's, you know, just cartoony enough that people don't get mortified by it. And then from there, you start cutting into the amount the mainstream audience is willing to deal with. But yeah. Couldn't speak for... Uh, the sensibilities in Europe uh, in any fashion, because I don't really know, but I would assume that they are probably less keen on the violence than Americans are, just as a rule. And Again, so... most, most of what I can say about French society on this comes from late-night television in France, 
but um, the the uh, twelve up rating, like the French equivalent of of PG thirteen, mm-hmm. includes um, includes random nudity and suggestions of sex, but the R rating is for anything with any level of violence that you would find in a normal PG thirteen movie in America. Hmm, that sounds about right. Yeah. Yeah. So America's the most uh, into our uh, like grotesque uh, depictions of violence and gore, but we we tend to draw the line at oh, I can tell how, what the what the thing that just blew up out of him was supposed to be doing. <laughs> America's replaced most of the normal level of pornographic material in media in the rest of the world with violence pornographic material. Mm. So, uh, go America. Uh, okay. Let's see. Uh, other than Bulletstorm and Mad World, what games succeed at stylizing, uh, stylizing gore as well as rewarding players who make as much gore as possible. No DMC, mind you. Um, I mean, my immediate thought would be what we also mentioned a while ago, No More Heroes, uh, which is a game about, in some sense, it's about American obsession with violence. Like, mm-hmm. uh, I can see that, yes. So, for those uh, who have not listened to my 5 million reads about No More Heroes, uh, Protagonist Travis Touchdown is an American weeaboo otaku who wins a lightsaber in an eBay auction and then kills someone outside a bar who is then approached by a lady who says that that was the 11th best assassin in the world and Travis can keep killing people in order to become the best assassin. Mm. Uh, That game is (laughs) is about uh, violence, it's about American culture, and it is about uh, a lot of things, but one of the things that I, that I do want to bring up, one of my favorite things about it, which is that the protagonist's name, Travis Touchdown, was chosen because uh, a fair amount of Japanese players would think it was cool, and every English speaker would think it was the stupidest thing they'd ever heard. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> you know? Respect. Perfect work. Um, but yeah, like, No More Heroes is, like, the most over-the-top violent. Like, you know, it's impossible to kill, to defeat an enemy without essentially exploding them in some fashion. Like, maybe you do a, like, German suplex that drops them on their head and their head just splatters, or maybe you, uh, you know, chop them, uh, you vertically bisect them, and... But it's about, like, also the way that, like, we contextualize violence to make it acceptable. Because, like, the the routine sound clip that plays essentially every time you bisect someone is the, uh, presumably the person dying screaming, might bleed. (laughs) Like, they are not concerned. Like, death does not mean anything to anyone in No More Heroes except for the person who is dying. And even then, kind of doesn't mean anything to them. Uh, it is a game that desensitizes the player to violence, to talk about violence. Uh, 
Also, fire miners asking, would the cruelty inflicted by the players in SimCity or the Sims uh, be less pleasant if those games tried to put a more human face onto the uh, victims? In other words, uh, how many layers of separation is needed to make cruelty uh, pleasant? I mean, that's going to depend on the person, but I think for most people, the answer has to be, I can't... I, I can't identify with this, and that's why it's easy to do with Sims, because while they are supposed to be people, they sure don't act like them, because they're, you know, the kinds of people that will, uh, like, have difficulty uh, finding a toilet and then just piss on the floor in front of the fridge, and hopefully you've never met anyone like that. Uh, but yeah, like, you see it in how unpopular it is to... Uh, and like with SimCity, it's just entirely abstraction. Like the game has a number on the screen that says this is how many people live in the city, but you can't interact with those people on a meaningful level if they're a number. Uh, but uh, you you see it with how uh, when you see player stats for uh, games that allow you to play good or evil, like a lot of RPGs and such. Uh, and general playtesting, the answer is basically that, at least on their first playthrough, like 80% to 90% of players make essentially all the quote-unquote good choices. Like, that's just how people interact with these kinds of games, because like that first time through, you're investing in the story, you're treating every character as human, and so you for most people, the natural urge is to not be just arbitrarily cruel to them, because that doesn't feel good to uh, and then, you know, once the player is playing it a second time, they're more divorced from uh, treating the story as a world they're affecting, and now it's a game that they're playing. And then that is when a larger percentage of players will play the evil path. But, you know, that first time, if the fiction is functioning correctly, it's not about how they look, it's how they act. And uh, an effectively written game will uh, generally decrease the desire of the player to be wantonly cruel uh, outside of something like a Grand Theft Auto, where uh, cruelty is built into the gameplay loop. See, Sorry, I didn't mean to step over you. Yeah. I was going to say, uh, familiarity breeds contempt. Yeah. Like, the, the next time through, you just, you know, it's like, okay, well... You know, I'm not as invested as the first time because, like, I already know what happens. And, you know, it's like getting another go to see just how things will go. I still can't bring myself to do it. I always feel bad playing evil in a game. But, <laughs> uh, let's see. But, yeah, I, I would say No More Heroes is, the most, is one of the most effective at stylizing core because it's doing it for a purpose. Uh, a very specific, a lot of very specific purposes, but I'm also a huge Super 51 shell, so give me, uh, so maybe take it with brain salt, but also play No More Heroes, which are really good. Um, let's see. Well, my um, first other thought was, um, oh, yeah, uh, I just completely forgot that. Uh, Bloodstained. Oh, yeah. Where the, the game really actually cool. has a mechanic involving the. Num 
the amount of blood spilled on screen in any given room <laughs> once you get yeah. the spell that lets you absorb it all. Yeah. Yeah. What do you so Which is after the boss that you after you have to beat the boss that uses this technique to heal herself of all the with all the massive blood stains that you have left around the room from trying to kill her before then. Man, that game's so good. Can't wait for Bloodstain 2. Uh, um, and here's a uh, one right down the middle for me. Uh, what action games are too complicated technically? Uh, like Nero was created for Devil May Cry 4 because Dante was too hard to master, right? Uh, I have I, I wrote uh, I've written at least one theme to how well the, uh, to why uh, Dante is no longer the character you first play when you start a Devil May Cry game. Uh, I think that's floating around on that Patreon of mine. But uh, yeah, basically uh, to to answer that second question first. I don't know that they've ever said it out loud, but the construction of Nero's moveset is entirely built around making sure that he is as he is versatile, but he is not as complicated as Dante. Because Dante, with his multiple weapon sets that all have entire combo trees, is extremely complicated to play, to the point where uh, multiple weapon sets, multiple game, uh, styles that you can switch between all at once. He is an extremely complicated character to play. Uh, like if it would be like if Ryu in Street Fighter was a stance change stance change character who also had grappling moves. Like he's he's just too much. He's everything, and so you can't start a Devil May Cry game as Dante because he has too much to teach the player. So they made Nero, who is a character who has a lot of Dante's moves. He has the core of the moves up. He can knock enemies into the air. He can juggle them. He can follow them up in the air. He can send them flying. He can do. Uh, but his capacity to do other things is much more limited. In Devil May Cry 5, they gave him uh, the uh, Devil Breakers, which give him a lot of capabilities, but he can't switch between them freely. He can't use all of them. So the player has like a very specific set of moves at all times, and there's only so much he can ever possibly be doing. Whereas Dante in... Devil May Cry 5 is so complicated that he has an entire move, an entire weapon that the entire point of it is just essentially making called shots. Like, it is a hat that he dances while wearing, and you can throw the hat at enemies, and the enemies uh, will drop more orbs the more uh, that you hit them while they're wearing the hat. But they will take orbs from you if they hit you while wearing the hat, and then that will send the hat back to you. It's ridiculous, but it is also very much Dante's playstyle. He is complicated. Dante, Dante's goal in fights is not to win, because winning is never a question. Dante's goal in fights is to be stylish. That is complicated. It's too complicated. And you can see people learning from how it's too complicated with characters like uh, Bayonetta. Bayonetta has multiple moves, but she can only ever have uh, th essentially two or three weapons, and uh, they don't have, like, they have 
fairly complicated combo trees, but she doesn't have this style-swapping mechanic that uh, completely regulates how Dante is played. Um, okay, looking uh, back at chat. Uh, did Wheels fall asleep? No, no. Okay. No, didn't happen. No, it didn't happen. Okay. There's no clips to prove this. There will be clips. Um, but yeah, uh, also looking back at Prime Runner's statements. Uh, yeah, tr people treat Sims like ants. And also, yes, I do remember Simant. Uh, Simant is uh, incredible because when you actually, like, as a child, I just played it to sort of see what happened and didn't realize what the actual goal was, and then you go back and realize what the actual goal of the game is. Uh, infest this house with ants because fuck that guy. <laughs> like, that's basically the entire goal structure of that. Uh, uh, also, Funny Hot Tail played with Notion of uh, players made evil choices on the second playthrough. Yeah, 100%. Like, Undertale was about how... Uh, it, it, yeah, and a lot of the way people approached it was about how uh, the the player loses touch with the world upon repeatedly interacting with it. Because they cease to see it as a world. They see it as a place to experiment. But, I do, I, every time I think about this, I end up thinking about the just profound galaxy brain take that I saw shortly after the game came out, where someone was saying that they didn't like how the game treated uh, killing uh, enemies as an, as an inherently less valid uh, playstyle than uh, not killing them. And it's like the entire themes of the game hinge on this mechanic and saying I should have been just as rewarded for killing as I was for not killing is a complete failure to interface with the theme of the thematic underpinnings of this video game. Uh... Reminds me vaguely of a, of a post I remember seeing back when a uh, minstrel song came out and mm -hmm. someone was like, well, rewards for this particular choice aren't as good as the, reward, as the rewards for that one and I mean why why would they do that if they don't or something like why would they want us to take this route if they won't give us the same or as good stuff and like as I recall the choice you're talking about involves like regicide um <laughs> yeah like that's that's like, one of those things like I uh, okay I, it was just like Okay, I mean, yes, you've got the freedom to choice, and that includes the freedom to take the consequences of your choice. Yeah, and like sometimes the point of a choice is that like you can make a bad choice because it gives more context to the good choice you also make. Yeah. Sometimes the bad choice gives you better short-term rewards. Just mm -hmm. partly why it's sometimes bad it even gives you. Sometimes it's like even like. You know, sometimes you design a choice where the good choice is just going to make your life harder. Like, sometimes that's intentional. Mm -hmm. It's just the marriage of themes and gameplay. Uh, let's see. Sometimes the choice involves blowing up a city with a nuke. Uh, to use the famous Don't example. do that, though. Hopefully you don't need a game to tell you not to do that. 
Tell that to half the players of Fallout 3. Wow. I didn't do that. I killed the guy as soon as he started talking about that nonsense and suffered no consequences. You gave him some frontier justice. Yes. Um, I'm just remembering um, Outer Outer Worlds where the deputy lady is giving me the next assignment. I'm like, okay, is she actually, is she really telling me what I think she's telling me to do? And it's like, okay. (laughs) You want me to literally remove a town from the map, not just figuratively in the map, but literally destroy it to the ground because the factory's not working because of me. And you need to write it off as a tax you have to do a tax write off on it okay okay let's see choices are sure are you really sure go to hell okay God, I love Outer Worlds that's it's so good and then I got to sh- then I got to shoot my way out of the office building because <laughs> now uh, now I have an official um, government assassination on my record and the entire city is out to kill me <laughs> Worth it. 100%. I'm sure I could have just said yes and then not done the quest line, but... But it, w- it wouldn't have been uh, projecting your principles onto the game world. And that's part of the fun. But, let's see. Iron um, Miner says, can we talk about uh, Cartia and that no game, even Final Fantasy, has managed to fully translate Amina's art style, or is it even possible? It's not possible. Have you ever seen uh, Angel's Egg? <laughs> no. Angel's Egg is an OVA that uh, was, it's like a, essentially an art film, basically. Uh, it was a collaboration between Mamoru, Mamoru Oshi and Yoshitaka Amano. Oh, that's going to be and, interesting. Yeah, it's an extremely interesting film, but uh, even with an extraordinarily high animation budget of like mid '80s Japanese OVAs and all sorts of technical artistry, that film barely moves because Amino's designs are too intricate to make a to approximate movement with. Mm-hmm. That's why they never used his illustrations as the main stuff in the game. It's always been the inspiration for the sprites. It's not even like if you if you look at the uh, interviews with the person who did the sprites for the early FF games, Kazuko Shibuya. Uh, she basically says, "Yeah, I made sprites, and then he drew art in vaguely referencing them." <laughs> it made a lot more sense. Uh, yeah. Basically, this is why it's not like Dragon Quest where. Um, Toriyama's artwork is the game. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, and this is one you can answer. Uh, do Japanese game stores sell things like MSX and FM Towns? I would imagine you can probably find those at game stores if you're looking at the retro shops. But um, no yeah, but it depends on the retro shop, and also it's going to be kind of rare anyway. Yeah, I would imagine they're quite expensive at this stage. Yeah, you're better off looking online for a lot of these things. Hmm. But yeah, um, I, I would argue that uh, there's essentially no uh, moving medium that can make that can feasibly bring across uh, Amino's art style. It just it's it's too intricate. Uh, like you you can see it in like it's it's very possible to make Toriyama art 
move because he was someone who drew for manga magazines. He needed to draw fast. He wanted designs that were easy to draw. Uh, I remember him once uh, saying in an interview that his least favorite uh, villain to draw in Dragon Ball was Cell because he's got like spots all over him. And that made him more complicated to draw. Uh, like Toriyama is was you know especially in the early Dragon Quest era he was working the manga grind and so his designs needed to be simple mm-hmm. and that translates well into a medium that has to move. Amano is an illustrator who does like these uh, very evocative like covers and individual pieces. Mm-hmm. And those are not friendly to being made to move. Um, uh, Fireminer, I assure you, I've seen the Red Spectacles. Um, there is uh, no honor in a men's restroom. But yeah, uh, Oshi is very much a man shaped by uh, circumstance, not just in terms of wanting to be a film director first and having anime be a sub a part of that, but also in terms of his uh, earlier life. I want to say that he was involved in uh, some 70s student protests, which informed some of his later work as well. Uh, yeah, o- Oshi is a uh, fascinating subject, but uh, somewhat a field of what I'm able to discuss right now. We also finally finished the prologue of the Alliance Alone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I may have died once and had forgotten to save. No, I noticed. Uh, I was hoping no one noticed. <laughs> uh, let's see. I'm going to hit... Uh... I'm going to hit uh, a couple more questions because they're all Devil May Cry related and thus I'm the only one that will care to answer them. <laughs> uh, speaking of Nero, would he receive new weapons in the next game or what he, is what he has right now enough for a beginner-friendly character? Uh, I think you're just going to see the uh, Devil Bringer, or not Devil Bringer, but Devil Breaker, well, Devil Bringer and Devil Breaker systems evolve a little bit, but I think that his general moveset probably doesn't need changing. Uh, because if you look between 4 and 5, he does not change that much. They improve him in a lot of little ways, but his fundamental gameplay style has not changed an iota between those two things. Uh, so I would expect that he will get uh, something that either replaces Devil Breakers or adds a new wrinkle to them, but probably not going to be changing uh, that too much because he is a very good play uh, baby's first character action ca- uh, character without being uninteresting for high-level players. Um, I don't think there's... like He is perfect for teaching you exactly what you need to be able to do to play Devil May Cry. Uh, and the related question of what are the chances of Capcom bringing back Dante for Devil May Cry 6? 100%. But he will not be the first character you play as, and he will not show up until halfway through. That's my bad. 
Uh, and just to answer a fairly quick one, uh, it's the source code for the Xbox enhanced versions of Grand Theft Auto, Vice City, and San Andreas, and three in this case. Lost, if not one way, are do Rockstar insist on porting the malign phone ports because all of the assets were like there was a lot of streamlining involved when they were ported to the phones. Like they ported them into Unity and they would have done a lot of essentially cataloging the assets and cleaning up the code base. So even if you still have the other source code, the phone source code is a lot easier to work with. So that's why you don't really see it come back. I mean, they're saying the ARPO protest influenced so many anime directors. Yeah, I mean, like, if you, if you look at anime directors, even dating back to, like, the 70s, like, I've, I've ranted about it before, but, like, the people making anime in the 70s were the children of people whose lives had been uh, either, like, they were the children of people who had survived World War II and had their entire worldview shattered, or... They were the children of people who didn't survive World War II and it thus had their own world uh, view shattered. So, uh, 70s anime is extremely influenced by that. And of course, as, as the world politics change, so too did the people who uh, create the things that continue to influence them. I was going to say, look at the entire evolution of Godzilla and also Gundam. Yeah. I mean, you look at Godzilla, and it's like you see a very uh, strong idea of Japan's relationship with nuclear power and other global uh, superpowers. <laughs> but, yeah, uh, and of course Gundam, I mean, Yoshiyuki Tomino is one of the most outspoken anime directors I think I've ever heard of, and... Uh, Tomino, uh, and I mean, dating back to the original Gundam, like, one of the core themes of that is, uh, like, sometimes, you know, like, forces cause people to go to war, and, like, it's not even wrong to defend yourself in that sense, but it is a case of, uh, anyone who participates in war is inherently damaged by it. Mm-hmm. Like, Amuro and his family are completely shattered by the events of the original Molosu Gundam, and he never recovers. But, yeah. Uh, I think, given that Wheels is now casting about for things to play and also extremely tired, it's probably about time to finish up. Oh, yeah. I guess so. So tell me about a princess. Well... And random news, somebody in the last six hours actually went and bought ten of my ebooks. Oh wow. Oh, yeah. Nice. I'm like, oh. <laughs> I was just checking to see if my regular um ebook um or Kindle Unlimited reader has been looking at anything, but oh I've actually got sales. Huzzah. Cool. Huzzah. That's that's a surprise. Let's see, nothing on paperback now. Okay. So yes, so yeah. Please be like these people. Um, we have uh, princesses of the 
It's a parlor and on Kindle and Kindle Unlimited, which somebody, multiple somebodies are obviously enjoying now. Yay. Um, yes. So if you, if you are interested in tabletop role playing games or as seems to be increasingly the case these days, watching somebody else play tabletop <laughs> role playing games because who can actually get that many people together for any amount of time on a regular basis? No one um, over the age of 25. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so we have we basically have an action play um, podcast of a game in book form uh, with me playing the part of literally everybody in the game, which is <laughs> fun. fun. Meta role playing. <laughs> yeah. It's at least three metas up at one point. Mm. But yes, so, um, but just for fun, anytime there is a dice roll shown anywhere in the narrative, I actually rolled dice. <laughs> um, this did not always turn out the way I expected it would. Um, at least twice it's had long, very long-lasting effects on the rest of the narrative going onward. Um, you have to flex your improv muscles. Yeah. Which is again is easier to do when you're writing it down. Um, <laughs> first, it's it's like the old saw of how does Sherlock Holmes solve all these mysteries? It's because the mysteries were made for him to solve. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But yeah. So, but yes, that's Princesses of the Pizza Parlor on Kindle and Kindle Unlimited by Michael Yarimizu. Y a r i m i z u. Um, because hey, it's easier to Google than Baker. Um, much, much easier. <laughs> um, and again, many thanks to my to my in laws for letting me use it. So, mm. uh, so yeah, give those a look. Uh, uh, also, before Fireminer leaves because he wished us a good night, just wanted to thank him for providing our questions both in the chat and in the question list. Always a pleasure. Um, mm. You should be like Fireminer, uh, and by that I mean you should ask us questions, either in Discord, uh, the RPGamer Discord, if you haven't joined it, you can get to it by going to RPGamer.com and clicking the TV tab. It's a wonderful place, even if you don't want to ask us questions, but you should, you should ask us questions. We love getting them. Uh, but once again, thank you to Fireminer for joining us in the stream chat, which you can also join us at. Uh, we typically stream at 9pm Pacific, uh, midnight Eastern, Wednesday nights, uh, unless something goes horribly wrong. <laughs> but uh, those are our normal stream times. You can ask us questions in the chat while we're uh, recording. But uh, even if not, you know, always good. And you can ask us questions in the comments section. Not many people do that no more, but it is an option. Uh, but yeah, thank you to uh, Fireminer for our questions this week, both Fireminer of the past and Fireminer of the present. Um, we also... and, and Fireminer of the future, too. Oh, probably. <laughs> but, uh, Wheels, before uh, you get uh, too wrapped up in Overwatch, what are you plugging? Uh, you can catch me on my Twitch channel, twitch.tv slash askwheels. We do this. That's where we record the show. We do this on there, and we do a Sunday night show, Sunday night shenanigans, which is usually multiplayer games. Um, and we're trying to make Mondays a platforming stream. Yeah, most likely we did uh, the first part of Cronoa, uh, Cronoa, Cronoa and 
probably continue doing that until I beat that game, but it's uh, got a long list of platformers I'm going to mess around with, including Ty the Tasmanian Tiger and uh, some other cool stuff. And there's also one coming out in the near future called Fragon, which looks fun. Uh, so. Fragon. Right, check that one out. So if you like the genre of plot genre of platforming, you can should keep an eye out for that, which I'm also posting all the I'm gonna post all those in their entirety on my YouTube channel, which is also Ask Wheels. So and check those out. And you can also find some hmm. older brand. older adventure and hmm. platforming videos there. Including one where I play Shadow the Hedgehog. <laughs> I don't know why you do that. Where, uh, I like how you're like dreading playing Tie the Tasmanian Tiger, but you played Shadow the Hedgehog. <laughs> I also played Ty back in this, so yeah, and that's a fine game. Yeah, yeah I guess There's nothing wrong with it. I don't know why you built it up in your head as this hell thing. It's just a weird <laughs> side mouth. That's why. Fair enough. Uh, yeah. So that should do it for us tonight. So, to all else, see ya, Space Cowboys. See ya. Yeah.